Easter. Well, good morning and welcome to our worship gathering. Happy Easter, everyone. What a, what a tremendous privilege it is to be able to preach on this Easter morning. I'm also excited to announce that we will be staying in the book that we've been in for a while, 1 Corinthians. We're just going to have to slide forward about five chapters to chapter 15, but we'll be able to stay in the book, and I always love that. You know, instead of going somewhere else, we could stay right where we've been. And I doubt very seriously that by the time we actually get to 1 Corinthians 15, that that series of sermons in that chapter will be just like today's. So don't worry if you're anticipating that to come. I'm sure the Lord will mix it up for us. In fact, the commentaries that I have all gave different angles on chapter 15, so not going to be an issue. I'm not going to repeat what we do today, although that would be much easier on me. You'll be like, this sounds so familiar. Yeah, we did it on Easter. Um, let me tell you, this particular chapter, really the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, it contains the longest, most extensive treatment of the doctrine of resurrection in the entire Bible. Chapter 15 does. The Apostle Paul literally devotes 58 verses to this subject in chapter 15. 58 verses to the subject of resurrection. The sheer size and, and depth of this passage was, was part of the draw for me as I pondered what we would study together today because every time a holiday comes around, the pastor is faced with the difficulty of determining, I know I have to talk about resurrection, where will I go to in the Bible to talk about it? And so it was very convenient and awesome to be able to just stay in 1 Corinthians, but it's the depth and, and size and magnitude of this passage that was part of the draw but not just that, what really sealed the deal for me was just the context and purpose of chapter 15, why it was written and its general purpose. Chapter 15 is a defense or what we would call in theological terms an apologetic that is meant to prove not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of those who trust in him for salvation. So the whole chapter is really a defense of the doctrine. And that is the major draw for me. Now apparently, these Corinthian brothers and sisters so long ago, apparently they had no real difficulty or struggle with the resurrection of Christ. What they had a problem with was their own resurrection. They somehow believed that Jesus had risen from the grave on the third day, but the application of it to themselves, their own resurrection in the future when he returns, that was the thing that they had trouble with. That was the thing that they weren't necessarily denying, but that they were wrestling with mightily and had just a hard time comprehending and understanding that and affirming that. We see in chapter 15, our text for this morning, in verse 12, this is where we see their struggle. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
Right? That's, that's a fact. That's what's being proclaimed here in, in chapter 15. That's what's being proclaimed in the whole Bible in a sense, especially in the New Testament. If he is being now proclaimed as raised from the dead, he says this, how can some of you, to the Corinthians, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If you know that he's been raised, how can you now say that you don't know if you'll be raised? What Paul does here is he uses simple logic to show the connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. He is saying that since Christ was raised from the dead, we shall be raised from the dead. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And it's basically preposterous to think otherwise and dangerous. It's dangerous to think that, well, sure, I don't have any problem with Christ rising from the dead, but I don't know about me. There's danger in that kind of thought. Since Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are inseparably linked, any denial of our own resurrection is a denial of his resurrection. If I say of myself, I don't think that I'll be raised in the future, I am at the same time implying that he was not raised in the past. That's where the danger is. Your denial of your resurrection is a denial of his resurrection because the two resurrections are like that. They're inseparable. If I say I, I don't think I'll be raised, I am indirectly saying that I don't think Christ was raised. Paul literally labors this point in chapter 15, verses 13 and 16. Verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And again in verse 16 he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And you could even flip it and say, If Christ hasn't been raised, then the dead are not to be raised. Do you see the link that he's creating here and showing and displaying and revealing that because he was raised, we shall be raised? So, you might think, well, it's no real big deal if I affirm his resurrection but deny my own. That's not really a big deal because what really matters is denying his resurrection and that's not something I do. I just don't know about my own. It's the same thing according to Paul in this text. If you deny yours, you deny his. If you deny his, you deny yours. You see how it works? Now, what are the broader implications here? Can a person be saved if they reject their own resurrection? Well, I don't see how since Paul teaches that this is tantamount to rejecting the resurrection of Christ. And no one who rejects the resurrection of Christ can be saved because the resurrection of Christ is literally the main cause for their salvation. So if you deny your resurrection and somehow in a weird way affirm his, I still don't think you're saved because ultimately you are denying his. When a, a person trusts in Christ for their salvation, they're believing in his life and death and burial and resurrection, and they're also believing that they will one day be raised because the two are inseparably linked
the necessity of Christ's resurrection for salvation and combined with the dangerous views of some of these Corinthian believers are what prompted Paul to spend so much ink on the resurrection of Christ in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. In his mind, souls were at stake, and rightfully so. He didn't see this as just a deficiency in their theology. He saw it as a danger to their salvation, and I would say rightfully so. If somebody gets the resurrection wrong, we need to take them back to square one, the elementary principles of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So this is why he spends so much ink on the doctrine in chapter 15. Souls were at stake in his mind, rightfully so. We will focus on the first section where Paul presents evidences or evidence for Christ's resurrection. This is the proper starting point since it was the event and doctrine that was truly in question here. We don't need to start with our own resurrection. We need to start with his resurrection. And that's what he does in the very first section. We need to talk about his resurrection and go back through that. Because when we comprehend and understand his resurrection, then ours makes way more sense. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in verses 1 to 11. We will discover and look at four testimonies in an apologetic fashion, a defense that literally proved the resurrection of Christ. This is going to be good for some of you skeptics, for some of you doubters. It'll be good for some of you who do not doubt these things because it'll bolster your faith, but that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we acknowledge our weakness and our dullness, our foolishness, our lack of faith, our hard hearts, our desire for sin, our pursuit of worldly gains and things, Lord. That is us, even the saint. Lord, help us to, through the power of your spirit, to, to hear your word today, to believe your word today, to obey your word today, and forevermore. It'll only be by your spirit. Teach us about the resurrection of Christ. Solidify these evidences, these testimonies, these truths in our hearts that we may not only believe, but live in the power of the resurrection. We commit the morning to you, and we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Let's begin with our first point, number one. The first thing we see is the testimony of changed lives. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Paul begins by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. Stop there. So the first testimony that we're looking at here is not stated explicitly like it is in the other points, but it is definitely implied. The very fact 
that the Corinthian believers themselves had, as, he, as Paul says, received the gospel, were also standing in the gospel, and were being saved by the gospel, was in itself strong evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Their own changed lives were evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Unregenerate, spiritually dead, faithless people, they do not do any of these things. They do not receive the gospel. They reject it. They do not stand in the truth. They hate it. To them, the word of the cross, the gospel is folly. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For these reasons, they are not, as Paul says here, being saved. So the first thing Paul does in, in, the ter in terms of a testimony is display the changed lives of the Corinthians. They received the gospel. They were standing in the gospel. They were being saved by the gospel. There's the testimony of the resurrection. It had changed them. It had transformed them, caused them to receive, caused them to stand, caused their salvation. That's what he's saying. The unbeliever is not interested in these things. He, is, he or she has not changed in, in, a, in the sense of desiring or pursuing these things or loving and cherishing truth. They may not be all that toxic and hateful toward truth, but in, in their heart of hearts, they're really not interested in the gospel in their lives. <clears throat> For these reasons, they are not being saved. However, the Christian is a walking, talking testimony to the resurrection of Christ. God has raised us to new life just as he raised Christ from the grave, Colossians 3.1. We are God's workmanship, born again, alive in Christ, new creations, Ephesians 2.10, John 3, 3 to 8, Ephesians 2.5, 2 Corinthians 5.17. In other words, the Christian has been thoroughly, con just completely transformed and changed because of the resurrection of Christ. The Christian is repentant and believing, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, because of the resurrection of Christ. The Christian is sanctified permanently and progressively, Hebrews 10, 10, 1 Peter 1, 2, because of the resurrection of Christ. The Christian is holy positionally and practically, Deuteronomy 14, 2, Romans 12, 1, because of the resurrection of Christ. The Christian is righteous in word and in deed, not perfect but righteous practically they pursue righteousness in word and deed first thessalonians 2 10 why because of the resurrection of christ the christian is running toward an altogether different prize the imperishable wreath first corinthians 9 25 we learned about that last week why because of the resurrection of christ changed lives because of the resurrection of christ Completely different from before. This I can testify. As a 30 years into my non-saved life of just being the most worst imaginable pagan, pursuing after all of the worldly things and all of the lusts and all of these things, and then being saved by the power of the resurrection and 
being completely different with a whole new set of desires and loves. The Christian has been changed in every conceivable way. Now, that is not to say that they don't have flesh that remains and that they don't struggle, but the Christian has been changed in every conceivable way, and this is because of the power of the gospel and more particularly the resurrection of Christ. Some of the Corinthians in that church, they displayed these qualities that I'm describing. They proved to be bona fide converts while others did not. They may have been part of the Corinthian church, but they just did not have this resurrection power and transformation being displayed in their everyday lives. They looked like it on Sundays, but the rest of the week they looked like Ozzy Osbourne, <laughs> biting bad heads off. Paul's exhortation to brother believers is to hold fast to the word that he preached because there is no other gospel that can change our lives. Galatians 1.9, hold fast to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because there's no other message under heaven that men shall be saved by. Any gospel that is devoid of any of those gospel components, especially the resurrection of Christ, is no gospel at all and is cursed. Galatians 1, 7. So first you have the testimony of changed lives. The majority of these Corinthians were changed by this gospel and by this resurrection, just as some of you and many of you have been changed by this gospel and resurrection. Some were. Let's move to our second point. The testimony of Scripture, verses 3 to 4. You've got the testimony of changed lives, now you've got the testimony of Scripture. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Let's just stop there. How important is the gospel of first importance? There's many churches that need to hear what I just said. They need to read what Paul just said because the gospel is not what is of first importance in these bodies of quote-unquote Christ. The gospel is of first importance he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, here, listen to this, this is a compact summary of the gospel right here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There is the gospel. If you've wondered what actually is the gospel, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in accordance with the scriptures. So the second evidence for Christ's resurrection was the Old Testament, the scriptures of Judaism and of the early church. While there is a generally agreed upon theology of resurrection in the Old Testament, connections between Psalm 1610, Psalm 22, and Isaiah 53, 10 to 11, they reveal that the Messiah, Jesus Christ in particular, would actually be raised from the dead. So in the Old Testament, Pretty much anyone who's ever studied it understands the concept and theology of resurrection, but they literally point to the resurrection of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And of course, on our side of history, he's already come. 
Let's look at those passages. Psalm 1610, it is a, an amazing prayer of David. David, David's prayer, it's a prayer of trust, and, and his prayer of trust in the Lord, it actually climaxes, it reaches its pinnacle, its highest point with, with, with confidence when he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the place of, de of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. That's Psalm 1610. So the whole Psalm climaxes with that statement in 1610. His hope is that he would not be left in the realm of the dead, Sheol. He doesn't merely want to be saved from an immediate, any immediate physical danger because we know he prayed for that all the time because Saul chased him down and the Philistines were always, always after him. He had all these surrounding temporal dangers, but that's not really what he's praying to be saved from here. He wants to overcome death. He, he is envisioning in Psalm 1610 resurrection. He is saying, God, don't, don't, I, I, I pray, and I know you won't, but I just pray that you, once I pass away at the end of my life, when my days are numbered and I come to the end, that you would not leave me in the tomb. Leave me six feet under. Leave me in a carved out, hewn out place of stone with a, with a cover. Leave me in the casket. Leave me in the box. The phrase, your holy one here, because that's what he says. He says, not letting your holy one see corruption. This phrase is a unique messianic title that never actually refers to David, but to, in David's time, the Messiah to come. It's a messianic title, a messianic moniker. The parallel is that since God's Holy One, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, uh, will not be abandoned to death or corruption, neither will those who trust in Him, namely David. That's the meaning of Psalm 1610. Since God raised Christ from dead and did not let Him see corruption or remain in Sheol, the place of the dead, God will not allow those who trust in him like David and me and Tim and Antoinette and Jared. We will not see this corruption or remain in these tombs forever and ever and ever either. That's the meaning. That's what David is in his climactic prayer is saying. So we see the resurrection of Christ prophesied in David's prayer, Psalm 1610. Not just his resurrection, but firstly, the resurrection of the Holy One, who is Christ. Psalm 22, there is a confident hope that neither David nor Messiah would be abandoned to Sheol or corruption in Psalm 22 as well as Psalm 1610. But in particular, it's really expressed in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 1 to 13, predict the scorn and suffering of Messiah, of Christ on the cross, and the prediction is eerily accurate. You should go back and read this. This was written a thousand years before Christ is born. So verses 1 to 13 focus on his scorn and suffering on the cross. Verses 14 to 21, they predict, prophetically predict his crucifixion and death 
the death of Christ and crucifixion on the cross. And then when you slide down to verses 22 to 31, they predict the resurrection of Christ. How so? Well, it says, All the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before him. That's verse 27. How on earth are all the peoples of the world going to turn to Christ and worship Christ if he is not raised? That's the point. If the Lord Jesus is not raised, they cannot turn to him in faith. They cannot worship him. That's the logic of Psalm 22. So that's, again, another revelation or prophetic pointing to the resurrection of Christ. He will have this multitude and body of disciples and worshipers who will worship him in real time. And, and, and they will not only do that, but a great many will, will come to him by faith and believe in him, not in some dead, buried, sealed prophet of old, but in a risen prophet, in a risen Messiah who actively participates with them and receives their worship as glory and as an offering. That's the meaning. So again, it points to the resurrection of Messiah, of Christ. Remember, Paul is talking about the testimony of Scripture. We're talking about that now. Isaiah 53 might be the most explicit on the subject. The Davidic Messiah, that's David's Messiah, the Messiah that David prophesied and talked about, the Davidic Messiah who suffers and dies and is, is raised is also Isaiah's, Isaiah's suffering servant. That's what Isaiah talks about in his prophetic writings, the suffering servant who would come. That's Messiah. The same person that David is prophesying about, Isaiah is, just with a different title. David calls him the Holy One. Isaiah calls him the suffering servant. Building on previous revelation, verses 10 to 11 in Isaiah 53 describes Christ's death and resurrection as part of God's will for the Messiah. It pleased God to crush him, to crush the Messiah, to crush the servant, to crush the Holy One. Verse 10, that this crushing led to death is made explicit in verse 9, where it says, And they made his, speaking of Messiah, the one who rose, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So right there, Isaiah is prophesying about the death of Messiah, of Christ, the servant, the Holy One of David. But that's not where Isaiah ends. He also predicted the resurrection of this Christ, of this servant, he says, and it sounds very reminiscent of Psalm 22, he says, speaking of Messiah after he's risen, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's verse 10, the rest of it. How can this servant, this holy one, this Messiah, this 
Christ, which is just the Greek word for Messiah, how can Jesus Christ, how can he see his offspring if he is executed unless he is also resurrected? You got to be raised to see those who believe in you. The Hebrew verb for prolong is sometimes used to refer to an everlasting afterlife. Psalm 23, verse 6, Psalm 91, verse 16. We see that word prolonged there, and this is the meaning that he would be raised to an incorruptible, never-ending existence or life. That is of Christ. Never to die again. Can't die again. Isaiah predicts that when the Messiah Christ shall be raised from the dead unto everlasting, unto an everlasting afterlife, that's how he's going to see his offspring. And this is how David and every believer will not be abandoned to the place of death nor see eternal corruption. It is because of the resurrection of Christ. Now, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he did not have the entire New Testament at his disposal. He did, however, have access to Matthew, Mark, Luke, probably James, and most certainly to two epistles that he had written, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which are thought to be the first ones that he wrote. Some say Galatians, but I think it came later. I don't think that he had any of these New Testament books in mind when he wrote according to the scriptures twice in our text because the term scripture in the New Testament usually refers to the Old Testament. Did you know that? Of the 53 appearances of the word scripture in the New Testament, and that would be the ESV version, 50 specifically refer to the Old Testament. Of the 53 that are there, 50 mean the Old Testament. Two are used in a more general way, and one actually refers to Paul's writings, 2 Peter 3.16, which Peter says are kind of hard to understand at times. By the mid 90s AD, all the New Testament books were completed and beginning to go out in circulation among the churches. Certainly they were not bound up and, and really organized and beautiful like our Bibles are today. They were written on scrolls, but they were in circulation. It's a mistake to think that the New Testament was not complete or in circulation until about 369 at Athanasius' um, conference when they canonized the New Testament. These books were being read and studied before that. But it wasn't until probably the mid-90s with the completion of John's gospel or revelation, I should say. Paul could have easily directed the Corinthians' attention to the New Testament books that he probably possessed since they provide ample evidence for the resurrection of Christ. In fact, they provide far more evidence in the Old Testament. Matthew 28, 1 to 10 talks about the resurrection explicitly. Mark 16, 1 to 8. Luke 24, 1 to 12. I mean, you just go to any of these New Testament passages and it lays out the whole way that it played out vividly. It's like HD versus the Old Testament being SD. We know the difference there because we just upgraded our screens. Wow, look at that. 
the old ones were like, hey, is there, are there words up there? I got to go to four focals. He could have pointed to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which he probably had in his possession. He certainly could have pointed to one of his own epistles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, which describes how believers wait for his son, that's Jesus, from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word, listen to this, the word raised appears 56 times in Acts all the way through the end of Revelation. 29 of these times it refers to Christ's resurrection. Half. When we combine the testimonies of the New Testament with the Old Testament, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ becomes overwhelming. Notice the detail Paul includes in the second half of verse 4 of our text, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, he's referring to the Old Testament. So now we have to ask and answer the question, does the Old Testament predict that Christ would not only be raised? We know that. But does it predict that he would be raised on the third day? Yes, on the third day. It's specific to when. Jonah 1.17, Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, both point to this. How many days did Jonah spend in the belly of a fish? What do you think that's pointing to? Him becoming part of the innermost depths of Long John Silvers? No. The resurrection of Christ. Remember, Jesus said everything in the scriptures point to me, even this poor sap getting swallowed like, you know, power bait from a big trout. Number three, that's the testimony. We've got the testimony of changed lives. That's the Corinthians and anyone who's in Christ. We've got the testimony of the scriptures, in particular the Old Testament. We're not even opening the New Testament because it's insane. Now, number three, we've got the testimony of eyewitnesses. Verses five to seven. The third evidence for Christ's resurrection was eyewitnesses. Listen to what it says. And that he appeared, talking about after Jesus was raised, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Verses 5 and 7 we're reading. Most of whom are still alive. When Paul wrote this about these brothers that he, that he appeared to, some, many of them were still alive of the 500. He says, though some have fallen asleep, some had passed away. Then, he says in verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Stop there. Mm. The third evidence for Christ's resurrection was obviously eyewitnesses. After he rose from the dead on the third day, he appeared literally to a multitude of people. Not at all at the same time, the 500, yes, but throughout a period. But he appeared risen and very much alive, very much with a smile on his face to a whole lot of people. To Cephas, that's Peter, Paul says. So that's the kind of the main apostle. Luke 24, 34, he appears to Peter. Paul says he appears to the 12. Who are the 12? It's the disciples. Those who were toured with him, did miracles with him, listened to his teaching. 
John 20, 19 to 29. John 21, 1 to 19. And Paul says the 12 here, long after the fact, he's factoring in Judas's replacement, Matthias, Acts 1, 20 to 26. So by the time Paul writes this, there are 12 disciples. Matthias came in and replaced Judas, who died and sadly went to hell. By the way, Matthias was everywhere. He was with Jesus from the baptism all the way through. So he was like one of the 12 and was an easy replacement for Judas when that time came. Paul says he, he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. Brothers, take note, those are believers. And to James, who's James? The half-brother of Jesus who did not believe in Jesus, his brother as the Messiah when Jesus was alive. But after Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, James believed. He became the pastor of the Jerusalem church. These two accounts... Jesus appearing to the 500, which I think is extraordinary. At one time, he appears to all these people. Where were they gathered? What were they doing? I don't know, but that's a big church back in those days. And here is Jesus appearing before the 500. Could you imagine you're having some kind of prayer vigil or, I don't know, somebody's up there preaching, and the next thing you know, you're moved aside and Jesus appears in the pulpit? What would happen today? Uh, would you, that would be, I think, terrifying and amazing. And this happened. And, and the, these two accounts of the 500 in James, they only appear here in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 to 7. You don't see that anywhere else. And then Paul says, and to all the apostles, that's kind of like appearing to the disciples, but he appears to all the disciples at once, Luke 24, 50 to 53. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus, after he rose, he presented himself alive to them, to the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So you get the idea that after he's risen, he appears specifically to the 12 to over a period of 40 days. Many times he's meeting with them to instruct them on the kingdom of God. That's amazing. Jesus, Paul doesn't mention here, he also appeared to Mary Magdalene. Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 9, John 20, 11 to 18. He appeared to a gal named Joanna and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and a gal named Salome, which one of our elders called Salami years ago. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. She has a sister named Baloney. <laughs> Salami, are you, what are you? How do you get a cold cut in your mind? He must have been hungry. I don't know. It's Salome. He appears to Joanna, Mary, not Salome, Salome. He appears to other women who are not identified by name. Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 1, Luke 24, 10. I think it's amazing that Jesus revealed himself in his resurrected form to a lot of women because in the first century, women had nothing. They were looked at as second or third class citizens, which is horrific. In fact, I think Mary's the first one he appeared to, to a gal. How amazing is that? He brought value to women. Jesus did. Value to women. He appears to all these gals who were there with him through thick and thin. And Paul doesn't mention this either, but he appeared to two disciples who were walking toward a town called Emmaus. Emmaus. 
They were all sad because Jesus died, didn't know he had risen, and then he rises from the dead. And later on the same Easter, first Easter, he appears and walks along the route with these guys, and they don't really know who he is because his appearance was different because he was in a, uh, you know, he was kind of um, transformed, I think, a bit, and they didn't really recognize him physically, and he's walking with them, and they don't really realize who he is. And then he starts to unfold who he is from the Old Testament because that's the scriptures in the New Testament. And, and they're like, oh, it's Jesus. And then he's like, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> Mark 16, 12, Luke 24, 13 to 35. They're like, come back. It's amazing how many people he revealed himself to after he rose from the grave. And maybe you're still skeptical and you say, well, yeah, all these examples are contained in the Bible. Newsflash, it's not just a spiritual book, it's a history book. There's a great many secular historians that recognize it for only its historical quality. It's not just a spiritual book, it's a history book. Now, the Old Testament judicial system under the Mosaic law, required two to three witnesses to substantiate any claim. Deuteronomy 19.15, if you had a claim against someone, you couldn't just bring them before a king or before a, a priest or a judge. You had to have witnesses or you got nowhere. They wouldn't even accept the case. You had to have a minimum of two to three. Jesus actually applied this rule to elders when they exercise church discipline. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Where two or three are gathered does not constitute a church service like some think. It is what's required when exercising church discipline. Jesus used this Deuteronomic rule then. According to to this mosaic standard, two to three eyewitnesses would have been more than enough to substantiate the resurrection of Christ. But the Bible presents somewhere in the neighborhood of 525 eyewitnesses. Not just witnesses, eyewitnesses, people who saw him. Sir Edward Clark wrote, as a lawyer... I have made a prolonged study of the evidences for the event of the first Easter day. For me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. The testimony of changed lives, the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of literal, living, breathing, 525, minimally, eyewitnesses. Let's move to our fourth and final point. Number four, the testimony of a special witness. Verses 8 to 11. Paul says, after giving... Peter and all these examples, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. 
whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Stop there. The fourth evidence for Christ's resurrection was that of the Apostle Paul himself, a special, unique witness of the risen Lord. Paul was not among the original apostles, all of whom had been disciples of Jesus during his earthly ministry. He wasn't included in that group. He was not among the 500 other believers who had seen the risen Christ, not with those disciples walking to Emmaus or with those lovely, God-fearing, Christ-exalting, loving gals who were there. He wasn't part of any of that. During those early days, Paul was an unbeliever. He was a chief persecutor of the church, Acts 8, 1 to 3, and chapter 9, verse 1 of Acts. Because of his terrible past. He started as a persecutor of the church because of his terrible past. He, here in this text, really didn't even consider himself or at least considered himself to be like he knew he was an apostle, but because of his past, he says, I'm like the least of them because of my track record and what I did in the past. He even calls himself, in a sense, because of what he had done before and persecuting and jailing Christians, he calls himself unworthy to be called an apostle in verse 9 of our text. When the risen Christ appeared to Paul, it was many years after the resurrection, many years after his ascension, because, you know, he rose and then later, 40 days later, he left the earth and ascended into glory in heaven. And so when Paul saw Christ for the first time, resurrected form, it was long after these things, years after. And this is why Paul says that he is last of all, not just the last of his list here of Cephas and all these others, but last of all in that he's really the last apostle to see Christ in the flesh or in person. He says this in the beginning of verse 8. Now it occurred when Paul was traveling to Syria to find, arrest, and incarcerate Christians who were hiding in Damascus. So when the risen Christ appeared to Paul, it was when Paul was en route, donkey-bound to Damascus to bust Christians because they were making Christianity illegal. They hated Jesus. They, the Jews murdered their Messiah. They hated Jesus. They hated the people. They hated the Christians. They hated the way. And Paul was part of the Sanhedrin that hated and did all these things. And here he is going to Damascus, Syria, to nail Christians. Acts 9, 1 to 2. And then a bright, blinding light shone around him. And he falls to the ground and he hears the voice of the risen Lord Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, because later his name was changed to Paul. Originally he was Saul the persecutor. Later he became Paul the apostle. But here Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's like, how have I persecuted you, Lord? Basically, by persecuting my people. When Christians are persecuted by unbelievers, they are persecuting Christ. Because to harm me is to harm him. To harm Pat is to harm Christ. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's kind of blown away. And then he says, he says to Paul or Saul, rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Acts chapter 9, verses 4 to six. That was his encounter 
initial encounter with the risen Christ. He walked away from that encounter blinded. He could not see physically. And it wasn't until several days later when he's in Damascus that a man by the name of Ananias restores his sight and gives him his commissioning directly from the Lord that you will be my witness to Gentiles. And Paul says here in our text, prior to this particular moment, his encounter with the risen Lord, he was like one untimely born, verse 8. What on earth does that mean? The Greek noun behind this phrase is ektroma. It refers to a life that is unable to sustain itself and is sometimes used to describe an abortion because believe it or not, abortion was around in the first century. It is used to describe the helplessness of a baby against abortion, against a miscarriage, against maybe a premature birth. That's how ectroma is used. And Paul is likening himself to someone in that helpless, hopeless stage of life. That's his meaning. Paul is using it here to illustrate the literal sheer hopelessness of his life before he met the risen Christ on the Damascus road. Prior to his encounter, prior to his conversion, because in this in first initial encounter, he was also converted and made a believer in this moment. J. Mac, John MacArthur says that Paul was spiritually unformed. He was spiritually dead. He was spiritually useless. And even though he was insanely religious, he was a person he thought in his mind prior to that somehow loved by God, but actually scorned by God. And that is the status or status of every person who has not had an encounter with the risen Christ. They are spiritually dead and without hope. Paul is saying, that's who I was. I was on my way to persecute my future brothers. I was without hope. I was just going along with blind religion. I didn't have, I didn't have hope. I didn't have purpose. I didn't have dignity. I didn't have identity. I didn't have security. I didn't have any of those things. I was like a helpless babe in the womb, but it all changed on that day. Amen. That's what he's saying. And until we have had an encounter with the risen Christ, that is us. And sometimes it's not all that detectable because we surround ourselves with family and friends and things. But we know deep down inside there's a void. We know. We know something is missing we have a, a God-shaped hole in our heart that only the resurrected Christ can fill. That was me. And sometimes I didn't even know it. I remember personally times where Prior to Christ, prior to even knowing Rachel, there were times where I would have 
excessively and exceedingly sinful weekends of drinking and carousing and womanizing. And by the time Sunday night would roll in, I'd be sitting in my cruddy one-bedroom studio on top of a garage on Hackberry. And I'd be sitting there so empty. And I would open the Bible and try to read Revelation. <laughs> and I'd be like, this is making it worse. Now I'm going to have a, a beast with seven heads tormenting me. I already got one. I remember trying to find answers in hope in a, in a Bible that I could not understand. And then by the time Wednesday rolled around, I was ready to do it again. And then by the time Sunday rolled around, it would be the same hopeless emptiness. It was a cycle and a pattern that only the resurrected Christ could break. And he smashed it. Notice in the text how the grace of God transformed Paul. Don't miss it here. He was not only saved by, by, by God's amazing grace through the resurrection or the resurrected or risen Christ while traveling to Syria, but he was also by this grace and by this resurrection power called, he says in verse 9, to be an apostle. And God not only saved me by his grace through the resurrection of Christ, but called me to be a pastor. You know, I have friends from high school when I talk to them, and it's not often because they're exactly the same, still smoking dope, acting like crazy at 53. I don't even know how they can do it, but they're still doing it, and they still marvel at me being a pastor. Because they cannot get their minds around how old freaky Phil has been changed. Paul is talking about how this grace and the power of the resurrection transformed him. He was without hope. He was hopeless and in dead religion and useless under the scorn and wrath of God. And now by grace through the resurrection power, no longer, no longer spiritually uninformed, no longer spiritually dead, no longer useless as MacArthur says, no longer scorned by God. Now he's called to be an apostle. And he, he says here, who eventually ended up working harder than any of them, which is a reference to the other apostles. We see that in verse 10. He's not just bragging here. The fact is Paul did outwork the other apostles. He accomplished more than all of them combined. He planted churches all over the place. He wrote 13 epistles in your New Testament. But notice what he says toward the end of verse 10. He clarifies that these things were not the result of his strength or his efforts or his skills or his faithfulness. He says, but by the grace of God that is with me. Paul attributes his conversion on the Damascus road, his 
calling and his constancy in ministry over-accomplishing, doing all these amazing things for the Lord. He attributes it all to the grace of God alone and more particularly the grace of God that came to him through the resurrection of Christ. In verse 11, Paul ties his preaching, the other apostles' preaching, and the Corinthians' faith to the grace of God, to the resurrection power. His point is that everything is the result of God's grace. And this resurrection, apart from grace, coming through this resurrection power, we are literally nothing. We literally have nothing. We can literally do nothing. The beauty of this passage is that Paul presents the gospel and more particularly the resurrection of Christ as the source of all of this glorious grace in verses 3 to 4. If there is no resurrection of Christ, there is no grace not even common grace, which is what is behind the rain falling on the unjust and the just. If you are an unbeliever in this room, you have been covered by the common grace of God. Not the saving grace, but the common grace of God. Do you have food to eat? Common grace. Do you have shelter? Common grace. Do you have clothing? Common grace. But let me tell you, without the resurrection of Christ, this doesn't even exist. It is a mistake. Listen carefully now. It is a mistake to think that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ only impacts or affects Christians and the church. It's a mistake to think that that's just a Christian thing. It is a mistake to think that. All people will be resurrected either unto eternal life or eternal death because of this gospel, more particularly because of the resurrection of Christ. John 5, 28 to 29. All people will be raised because of his rising. So what does that mean? It means that the resurrection of Christ has implications for everyone, not just Christians. Another thing. All people will be judged because of this gospel, because of the resurrection of Christ, Acts 17, 31. It's not just a Christian thing. It's a global thing. There is a day set forth for judgment based on the resurrection of Christ. And this isn't the judgment of his people because they're not under judgment. It's the judgment of the rest of the world. Here's another thing. It's a mistake to think that this is just, it just has to do with Christians and no one else. The earth will be destroyed by fire because of this gospel, because of the resurrection of Christ. 2 Peter 3, 7. You've heard of the flood. Noah's destroyed everyone but eight. There is something that is coming that is that was cataclysmic, but there is something that is coming that will put an end to this globe the way that we know it all together. The flood did not do that. The world recovered. It will not recover and return to its same manner after this. The elements are destroyed by fire because of this gospel, this resurrection. And another thing, a new earth 
a new heaven and a new Jerusalem, we just sang about it, are coming because of this gospel, because of the resurrection of Christ. Revelation 21, 1-2. So, so what I'm saying to you this morning, because there is an awful temptation in us, especially within those of us who do not believe, to say that's just fine and dandy for Christians. It's not just for Christians. This whole world is impacted by the resurrection of Christ, by this gospel. It will be destroyed. It will be judged, raised, judged, destroyed, and made new because of this gospel, because of the resurrection of Christ. The only way, as we end, the only way to be delivered from the hopelessness as one untimely born, as Paul describes this utter hopelessness, the only way to be delivered from this divine judgment, this resurrection unto death and this divine judgment, wouldn't you rather be resurrected unto eternal life rather than eternal death? Come on! The only way to be delivered and saved from this hopelessness that we have now in this this future resurrection unto death, this divine judgment and, and, and what happens after the judgment, which is literally eternal death, the only way to be delivered from these horrific events that are coming is to believe this gospel. Now, the text provides plenty of evidence, doesn't it? We've looked at the testimonies of changed lives, scripture eyewitnesses, and a special witness. What is our next step? It is to repent and believe this gospel. Trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. Believe that he lived a perfect life to earn for you a righteousness that you can never get through your good works. You're clothed in his righteousness. Believe that he died on a cross to pay for your sins. Believe that he was buried to settle our accounts. Believe that he rose from the dead on the third day, just as predicted in the Old Testament, just as fulfilled in the New Testament. Believe in that message. Put your trust in Christ. Repent and turn away from the, the decades of unbelief and trust in Christ and you shall be delivered. You will have hope. You will have purpose. You will have a mission. If you confess, or if we confess, or if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9 says, you will be saved. For those who already confess and believe, for us Christians who are here this morning just to celebrate the resurrection, I want you to be encouraged and strengthened by these testimonies here in this chapter. The evidence is overwhelming. Christ rose from the grave on the third day, undoubtedly. We believe this as Christians. And it's not in our own strength that we believe this or by our own will or determination. It is the active saving grace of God in our hearts. 
we have been given the gifts of faith and repentance. I pray that God grants that to those of you who do not yet have them. But we are focused on the resurrection of Christ today, and rightfully so. But we believers, and anyone in here essentially, but we mustn't forget that Christ didn't just rise, but he also ascended on the 40th day. He rose on the third day, but he ascends and returns to heaven on the 40th day. And now he is enthroned in glory at the right hand of the majesty as Lord of lords, King of kings, prophet and priest. He is our great high priest. Mark 16, 19, Hebrews 8, 1, Revelation 19, 16, of course, Acts 7, 37. And do not forget this. He will come again. Just as certainly as he came the first time, Revelation 22, 7. And in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, those who were in Christ will be raised from our graves, given new glorified bodies, and be made like him. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. 1 John 3, 2. That is our hope. And our hope is not based on faith in the abstract, but faith in the true, risen, testified to Christ. What do we do in the meantime, brothers and sisters? We are to continue to do really what Paul admonished the Corinthians at the very front of this text. We are to stand in God's truth. In the meantime, we stand in God's truth. We walk in God's resurrection power, and we continue to work in the church by God's amazing grace. Amen.